Last time we spoke, General Alexander and Slim managed to escape General Aida's forces when they captured Rangoon. The airfield at Magway was absolutely smashed by the JAF, who sent over 271 aircraft to hit them. Then, we opened up a new theater of operations for the Japanese, that of the Indian Ocean. The IJN invaded the Andaman and Nicobar Islands with ease and then began a large operation against Ceylon. The Kidobutai, plus the 5th Carrier Division, rained hell upon Ceylon, hoping to catch out the British Pacific Fleet. The British Pacific Fleet tried to strike a fight with the invaders, but in the end, utterly failed, and their Force B was smashed as a result. The old carrier Hermes would be one of the many victims during this catastrophe. And so today, we're going to finish up one of our oldest adventures, that of the Battling Bastards of Bataan. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much more, so go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and if after all that you are still hungry for some history content, why don't you check my personal channel out at the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there you can catch my new series on Southeast Asia during World War I. Check it out, it means a lot to me. For the past four months, since the start of the Pacific War, all of its objectives for Phase 1 had been achieved. Except for one. Hell, the completion of the Dutch East Indies campaign was completed way ahead of schedule. The Malayan and Singapore campaign was achieved with such a success it gave General Yamashita his rock star title, the Tiger of Malaya. The IGN battles in the Pacific and Indian Oceans laid waste to Allied naval forces. The fall of Rangoon showed the Burma operation was on a good track, and thus Tokyo began to shift to phase two of its operations, beginning with a push towards Midway, Australia, New Guinea, Ceylon, and India. But despite all of this, one campaign remained embarrassingly unresolved, that of the Philippines. Despite the capture of Manila, General Homa's forces still were fighting bitterly against the battling bastards of Bataan, and continuously being forced to ask for more and more reinforcements. Now, the last time we spoke about Bataan, the Japanese forces had suffered tremendous defeats in the month of February, the defenders at the orion Bekak line had held and repelled the invaders. Malaria and dysentery was rampant amongst the troops. Hell, by the end of the Battle of Bataan, Q9 pills would literally run out. 
Over 10,000 U.S. troops would be confined in field hospitals. Food rations were at 50%, and the 26 cavalry's horses were literally slaughtered for food in desperation. This same sort of suffering was taking place amongst the Japanese forces as well. To General Homa's misery, the amphibious assault attempts which resulted in the Battle of the Points saw Japanese units getting absolutely smashed. Then, when a breakthrough occurred on the Orient-Bakak line, the result was the Battle of the Pockets. But despite the colossal effort by the Japanese forces involved, they were likewise smashed, similarly to what had happened at the Battle of the Points. General Homa would only manage to extradite 378 men from the Battle of the Pockets disaster. This resulted in an embarrassing Japanese withdrawal of several miles on February the 22nd. And at that point, a total of three battalions of the Japanese 20th Infantry Division had been in effect destroyed. It seemed that General Homa would miss the 50-day campaign target that had originally been set. The two minor victories in January and February had hinted how strongly constructed defenses could thwart the Japanese flanking movements. But this went completely over General MacArthur's head. He failed to learn the important lesson of the Battle of the Points and the Battle of the Pockets, that the enemy's flanking movements could be quickly turned against them and used to surround them if the defense remained resolute. By late February, the sickness rate rose alarmingly. Bataan was one of the most malaria-infested areas in the world, and the supply of quinine pills was drying up. Weakened by malaria, hunger, dysentery, over 500 men were hospitalized in the first week of March, and the doctors feared an epidemic was commencing. There was still talk of a mile-long convoy en route filled with supplies and reinforcements. But for most of the defenders, this was just a pipe dream. At this point in the war, correspondent Frank Houlette wrote the infamous little song sung by the miserable men at the front lines. It is as follows. We're the battling bastards of Bataan. No mama, no papa, no Uncle Sam. No aunts, no uncles, no cousins, no nieces, no pills, no planes, or artillery pieces. And nobody gives a damn. General Homa was yet again in a humiliating position of having to ask for more reinforcements from Tokyo. And yet again, Tokyo sent reinforcements in the form of the 4th Division from Shanghai, though its trip to the Philippines would take some time because of ongoing operations in the Dutch East Indies. They would arrive eventually on March the 15th, and in the meantime, General Homa gave the men of the 16th Division and the 64th Independent Mixed Brigade some much-needed R&R. These units would have the time to rest and would also receive around 3,500 men and 60 officers each to replace all those that they had lost during the campaign. 
Added to this was reinforcements of the Nagano detachment, led by Major General Nagano Kenichiro, consisting mostly of men from the 62nd Regiment and the 21st Division. With all of these forces on hand, General Homa hoped once and for all to break the battling bastards of Bataan. It was at this point that President Roosevelt ordered General MacArthur to relocate from Corregidor to Australia. In reality, it was Army Chief of Staff, General Marshall's call. The idea to do so, however, came from the Australian Prime Minister, John Curtin. Now, Eisenhower had argued that MacArthur was expendable, but Marshall had second thoughts on the matter and decided that the capture or death of General MacArthur would hand over one of the largest propaganda tools available to the Japanese Empire. Try to imagine General MacArthur strung in front of cameras forced to read some propaganda pieces kind of similar to modern-day terrorism, if you think about it. MacArthur had become this quasi-superhero, a beacon of resistance for those back home in America. I mean, the truth, as I think I have painfully made it clear to you, the audience, was quite the opposite. MacArthur screwed the pooch, as we say, in just about every single way. But despite all that, to the American people, he was, ironically, a godlike figure. Letting him fall into the hands of the Japanese would be a colossal humiliation and would have a disastrous effect on overall morale. There was also the new military and geopolitical importance of Australia to consider. What if the Australians simply came to an arrangement with Japan? Hell, it's not so far-fetched when you think about it. After all, Prime Minister John Curtin was certainly furious with Sir Winston Churchill, lambashing him for abandoning Australia. At this point, America had not yet fully committed itself to Australia, and Britain was being seen more and more as an incompetent nation. As one Australian officer had vented, the British army had been forced back by a small Japanese army of only two divisions riding stolen bicycles and without artillery support. End of quote. I think General Yamashita would have really loved that quote. So by taking General MacArthur to Australia, well, it might help shore up the Australians' willingness for the cause. There were, of course, others voicing the need for MacArthur's rescue. The Republicans, alongside the New York Times, pushed for MacArthur to be brought back from Corregidor. Not to go too far into it, but as some of you probably know or could imagine, MacArthur, from day one of the war, was using his personal press entourage to build up his image and one of the largest reasons as to why he did this was because he had plans for the White House. Regardless, at first MacArthur resisted the calls to relocate, declaring that rather than obeying the president, he would instead resign his station, cross over to Bataan, and volunteer himself to fight with the men on the front lines. And of course he would say this. 
It was the usual MacArthur theatrics that he would send to the reporters back home. Now on March the 10th, poor General Wainwright was summoned to Corregidor, where Sutherland informed him that MacArthur was indeed leaving the very next evening by torpedo boat for Mindanao. From there, a flying fortress would take him to Australia. Thus, General Wainwright would be left in command of all the troops in Luzon as the head of the newly established Luzon force. Sutherland finished by saying this. If it's agreeable to you, General Jones will get another star and take over your first corps. End of quote. General MacArthur came out of a small gray house on the eastern end of the Malinta Tunnel, and then he said to Wainwright, I want you to make it known, throughout all elements of your command, that I am leaving over my repeated protests. Of course I will, Douglas. If I get to Australia, you know I'll come back as soon as I can, with as much as I can. You'll get through. And back. General MacArthur then gave Wainwright a box of cigars and two large jars of shaving cream before saying, Goodbye, Jonathan. They shook hands. If you're still on Batan, when I get back, I'll make you a lieutenant general. End of quote. That poor bastard General Wainwright was being left to take the fall. The next evening on March the 11th, at around 8 p.m., the PT-41, torpedo boat commanded by a colorful bearded lieutenant named John Bulkley, took the Rock, which was the code name for General MacArthur, his wife, his four-year-old son, Arthur, oh, and most of his entourage as well. Yes, you heard me right. Without informing or even getting permission from General Marshall, and much to the shock and fury of Washington later, General MacArthur took with him his chief of staff, General Sutherland, Colonel and his personal aide, Sidney Huff, Brigadier and his intelligence officer, Spencer Akin, Captain Hugh Casey, Lieutenant Colonel Richard Marshall, Colonel Charles Willoughby, his press officer, Lieutenant Colonel Legrand Pick Diller, and Colonel Harold George. This became known as the Batan Gang, and they would, for the remainder of the war, remain his loyal assistants. It should never be said that MacArthur was not loyal to his personal staff, for they in return made sure to remain 100% MacArthur pundits. They all set off under the cover of darkness, speeding through the tempestuous seas of Mindanao, narrowly avoiding detection by the Japanese destroyers going about. MacArthur suffered chronic seasickness on their journey, later describing it as a, quote, a trip in a concrete mixer. A B-17 flying fortress took them all to Australia, and they touched down at Alice Springs, where MacArthur carefully crafted a statement for the press. On arrival in Adelaide, by train, 
he pompously declared, I came through and I shall return. End of quote. General MacArthur, of course, ignored Washington's request to replace the I with a we, and thus the phrase, I shall return, became MacArthur's most famous quote alongside the later, I have returned. Yet a much lesser famous quote during the same interview gives a deeper insight to the political in-house fighting going on. It is as follows. The President of the United States ordered me to break through the Japanese lines. For that purpose, as I understand it, of organizing the American offensive against Japan, a primary objective of which is the relief of the Philippines. End of quote. General MacArthur's understanding that he would be in charge and secondarily, that the relief of the Philippines would be a primary objective were assumptions on the part, as you can imagine, of Douglas MacArthur. MacArthur would spend the rest of the war fighting a two-front war, one against the Japanese, the other against the United States Navy. The later, he referred to as the Navy Cabal and he would fight them just as ruthlessly as the Japanese. So, I, I think I've done enough of my usual MacArthur bashing. Let's get on with the war. As I had mentioned, MacArthur's departure from Corregidor coincided with quite a lull in the fighting as General Homa was busy reorganizing his forces, giving them some much-needed R&R. Meanwhile, MacArthur's War Plan Orange blunder meant that General Wainwright's troops were in, well, a hopeless situation. It also had not helped too much that some of Bataan's food reserves had been transferred by orders under General MacArthur to go to Corregidor. MacArthur's disappearance to Australia also could not have helped morale on Bataan or Corregidor. Although the arrival of Wainwright to take his place was immediately improving relations between the Army and Navy personnel. When Hideki Tojo read the report about General MacArthur's escape, he was furious. It seemed it might have been the last straw for poor General Homa. Tojo told his secretary, Colonel Suzumu Nishidura, to convey concerns about the situation in Bataan. Nishinura took the problem straight to the chief of operations, Colonel Takushiro Hattori, a longtime friend of his. Colonel Hattori had just arrived with the 4th Division from Shanghai. Upon doing his homework on the Bataan situation, Hattori concluded that Mount Samat, a rugged hill rising around 1,900 feet that lay just behind the center of the defenders' front lines was the weak point that they should hit. Once they captured this point, the defensive line would simply crumble. A good artillery and aerial bombardment in front of that point should soften it up so that a full-scale infantry drive could take it. Hattori, after being prompted by Nishinua, took this idea and persuaded General Sugiyama 
to approve the plan. This, in turn, was given to General Homa, who was, upon first glance of the proposal, deeply satisfied with it. He assumed this was the solution to his misery. The IGN supplied a fresh new squadron of Zero Fighters and 24 Betty Bombers to Bataan, and the IGA sent 60 Sally Bombers. By the end of March, some 67,100 Japanese troops, 80 bombers, and 140 artillery pieces were brought to unleash hell upon Bataan. Their plan was to launch their main attack on the Manila Bay side of Bataan, where the 2nd Philippine Corps held the defender's line. General Homa, fearing further disgrace, wrote on April the 2nd, There is no reason why this attack should not succeed. End of quote. This was a make or break for General Homa. Now, before he left, General MacArthur assigned the Visayan force to Brigadier General Bradford Chinoweth to allow General Sharp to fully focus on the defense of Mindanao, from where the Americans still hoped to launch a counteroffensive. Quite a pipe dream at this point. He also ordered Major General George Moore to prepare supplies and defenses on Corregidor Island for a final stand in case Batan fell which made the food situation even more miserable for the poor paddling bastards on Bataan, as I had mentioned previously. The first corps was then assigned to General Jones, who had commanded the South Luzon force in its retreat to Bataan. The overall command of the peninsula was assigned to Major General Edward King, who had been the commander of the artillery during most of the campaign. By the end of March, Defenses across the Orion-Bakak line had been improved, and the half-starved and poorly equipped Filipino soldiers had further enhanced their training in jungle warfare. General Rainwright's troops took the lull time to dig trenches, dig drainage areas, set up camouflage. They cleared further fields of fire, extending to the front, to include all foliage and cover afforded to the enemy within small arms range. The troops at the front strung barbed wire, and they constructed tank traps and obstacles. In the First Corps, the engineers planted three large minefields along the most probable routes of hostile advance, and laid about 1,400 improvised box mines and 35 submarine depth charges. Despite MacArthur's intentions to retain command from Australia, which is logistically insane, General Rainwright was left in command of the American forces in Luzon with the final order to fight for as long as his troops had the ability to resist. Wainwright was well aware his troops were starving and that morale was at the bottom of the barrel. General Homa planned a three-pronged attack along the narrow front located around Mount Samat. After his forces would break through Samat, they would then push on to Mount Limay, and from there, they would march upon Merivelle. But General Homa had incorrectly assumed that the defenders were executing a defense in depth along the three lines of Mount Lin, Mount Limay, and Merivelle. Thus, he expected this operation to take well over a month to complete. 
He was going to send the fresh 4th Division, led by Lieutenant General Kitano Kenzo, supported by General Nara's 6th Summer Brigade. Nara would advance west up the Pantingana River and continue on towards Marivelles Mountains, while the 4th Division would split into two groups, with the right wing trekking across the Taiwell River, going through the Katmon Valley towards Samat, and the left wing heading east directly upon Samat. Meanwhile, General Moriaka's 16th Division would perform a feint attack to pin down the 1st Corps, and the Nagano Detachment would perform feint attacks across the eastern coast. By late March, General Homa unleashed his artillery and aerial bombardments upon the defenders' lines, absolutely hammering them. In the meantime, his forces got ready to storm their targets on April the 3rd. At dawn of April the 3rd, the Japanese unleashed a six-hour-long aerial and artillery bombardment over Mount Samat. 100 aircraft, 300 artillery pieces, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. turned Mount Samat's stronghold into an absolute inferno. Over 60,000 tons of bombs were dropped over the defenders, destroying most of the newly constructed defensive works. The heat of the burning trees was so bad, the American and Filipino forces had to leap out of their foxholes and scramble to secondary lines of defense further back, only to realize the entire area was becoming engulfed in fire. Soon, hundreds of men were asphyxiated by the smoke and some were literally cremated. Panic set in, and like animals during a forest fire, Many men simply ran south. By the afternoon, the bombardment had busted the door wide open for the attack to commence. Masked by the smoke and flame, the Japanese infantry and their tanks bulldozed south, unimpeded, and within an hour, they had opened up a three-mile gap. By the time General George Parker, commanding the 2nd Philippine Corps, over in the eastern half of Bataan, was given reports of the situation, it was around dusk. So he sent 600 men to try and plug up the hole, but by then it was far too late. The next day, General Nara's forces swept west of Mount Samat, while the fresh 4th Division circled around the other side. Nara's forces were confronted by the bulk of the 41st Division, while Catano's ran right into the 21st Division of Brigadier General Matteo Capimpin. The Japanese had expected heavy opposition, but none were really to be found. In reality, the 42nd and 43rd Regiments had been almost completely routed by the heavy bombardment, leaving only the 41st Regiment to fight on and they retreated to a line near the junction of routes 29 and 429 further south. The right wing of the 4th Division crossed the Tarawa River and sent the 21st Regiment running for their lives. By nightfall, both forces had advanced a thousand yards without facing much resistance, and the morale of the defenders was plummeting further. The following day, more artillery and aerial bombardments commenced, and the remnants of the 42nd and 43rd regiments routed into a stampede fleeing south, leaving the 41st to almost be completely encircled during a fighting withdrawal. They courageously fought, but to no avail. 
the bombardments were far too intense, and they were forced to continue fleeing south. Meanwhile, the left wing of the 4th Division bashed the 22nd and 23rd Regiments, sending them also into a full retreat. The defenders' artillery was so confused by the numerous moving forces that they began to just open fire at will, hitting many friendly units as they tried to stop the Japanese advance. By the end of the day, the Japanese occupied the entire main line of the resistance, with the 4th Division's right wing firmly taking a hold of the frontal foothills of Samat. General King sent the 31st Regiment to try and reinforce the lines. On a especially hot Easter Sunday of April the 5th, American and Filipinos entrenched in parts of Mount Samat were being shelled without mercy. Once the barrage dissipated, Japanese infantry rushed up the mountain, and after lunchtime, they had planted the rising sun flag upon its summit. As Hattori had predicted, the seizure of the mountain sent shockwaves throughout the entire Batan defense system. In desperation, General Parker ordered a four-pronged counterattack to regain the main defensive line. Simultaneously, General Homa had launched an attack southeast towards the Lema River. The result was the two forces colliding, and half of General Parker's 31st were encircled and destroyed. There was nothing to keep Nara's forces from sweeping all the way to the end of the peninsula. East of Mount Samat, the lines were still holding. Brigadier General Clifford Blumel tried to take the battered 31st Division and counterattack, but they were quickly forced to pull back. Without any orders, he began forming a new defensive line along the small San Vincent River. From the heights of Mount Samat, Colonel Hattori watched his war plans unfold better than he could have possibly imagined. To the west, he could see Nara's troops stream relentlessly past scattered and routed American units. To the east, the 4th Division was beginning to hit Brigadier General Blumel's improvised defensive line. By nightfall, this was about all that stood between General Homa's forces and a complete rout of the defense of Bataan. Blumel performed an inspection tour during daylight when he saw a truck column emerge towards his rear flank. The San Vincent line has broken screamed a G.I. from the first vehicle in the column. Blumel could not hope to stop the stampede of Allied troops running for their lives. It's alleged he physically tried to grab men, shouting at them to stand and fight, but they wrenched themselves loose and ran. Major General King, who had taken over command of the Luzon force after Wainwright received the envious promotion to being the man to take Douglas MacArthur's failures as his own. King was a modest man, courteous to all the ranks of men amongst him. He was an intellectual and an artilleryman of wide experience. On April the 7th, a few hours after Blumel's line had routed, he received a phone call from Corregidor. Wainwright asked him, that since the troops on the western half of the peninsula were still intact, why shouldn't they 
turn right and attack towards Manila Bay, cutting Homa's line in two. King thought, while it was true, he had left half of the line still somewhat holding his position over there, those men were still in no physical condition to perform an offensive. Nevertheless, he reluctantly agreed to give the attack a try. The recently promoted Major General Albert Jones, commanding the 1st Philippine Corps, was not as enthusiastic about the idea. Jones stated that the attack was senseless, and told Wainwright that directly through a three-way phone line between him and King. Wainwright left it to King to make the call, and he simply hung up. So King ordered Jones to pull back his troops in four phases. King also sent his chief of staff, Brigadier General Arnold Funk, to Corregidor to persuade Wainwright that the troops would most likely surrender at any moment. Wainwright was being pressured by commanders in Bataan such as Funk that surrender was imminent. But he was also being pressured by MacArthur, who was sending radio messages such as this. Utterly opposed under any circumstances or conditions to the ultimate capitulation of this command. He should prepare and execute an attack upon the enemy once food supplies were exhausted. So, what could Wainwright do? Well, Wainwright told Funk, You will go back and tell General King he will not surrender. Tell him he will attack. Those are my orders. But General, you know, of course, what the situation is like over there. You know what the outcome will be. I do. End of quote. The next afternoon, Colonel Takeo Imai planted the rising sun flag upon Mount Limay as Japanese infantry poured steadily down the eastern half of Bataan. Fleeing before the Japanese columns were American and Filipinos, pouring into the jungles near the toe of the peninsula. It seemed like terror alone kept the exhausted men moving. At the end of the peninsula in the town of Marivel, a few boats were evacuating the very last refugees to Corregidor while other vessels were being scuttled in the bay. Mobs of disorganized soldiers watched with absolute resentment as the privileged few were evacuated at the docks. On April the 8th, the 57th Infantry Regiment and the 31st Division were completely overrun at the Alangan River. The 45th Infantry ordered to get to Corregidor while they failed to reach their embarkation point, before they were cut off and completely encircled. Only about 300 men of the 31st Infantry managed to get across to the island. In total, about 2,100 men had managed to find their way to Corregidor. About half of them were sailors and marines. As for the Filipino army, Major General Edward King, Wainwright's field commander on Bataan, reported, in two days, an army vanished into thin air. End of quote. 
Now, I also found this following quote from a source, and I was unable to find the name of its author. Presumably, I would imagine it's from a soldier who is in Marivel. It is as follows. They were going to join those draft dodgers on Corregidor, where life was soft with plenty of drinking water, canned food, and romantic nurses. They would sit safely in the Malinta Tunnel until the mile-long convoy arrived to relieve them. They would be the heroes, while those left to rot on Batan would be disgraced for throwing in the towel. End of quote. At his HQ in the Malinta Tunnel, Wainwright phoned King at 11.30 p.m. on April the 8th, and he told him, to launch an attack northwards using Jones' 1st Philippine Corps. King passed the order to Jones, who simply replied to him, Any attack is ridiculous. Out of the question. End of quote. King told him to forget about the attack, and instead ordered his chief of staff and operations officer to meet him at midnight. There was zero debate. The situation was indeed hopeless. Wainwright was hamstrung by MacArthur's explicit order to attack until the very end, and King decided to take the horrible burden upon his own shoulders. King knew by doing so he would face a court-martial if he ever made it back to the United States, but the lives of 78,000 soldiers were more important than his honor. So King told the men, I have decided to surrender Batan. I have not communicated with General Rainwright because I do not want him to assume any part of this responsibility. End of quote. Just before 2 a.m. the next morning, Jones called King, but before either could say a word, there was a deafening roar. The roof of King's command post blew right off, and rubble showered down upon him. For crying out loud, Ned, what's going on? The ammunition dump is blowing up. Hell, I can feel the ground shaking all the way up here. Must be an earthquake. I hate to tell you this, Jones, but I'm surrendering at 6 a.m. Put up white flags all along your lines and destroy the artillery and machine guns. I don't see what else you can do. End of quote. Around four hours later, a duty officer in Malinta Tunnel informed Wainwright of King's surrender. Tell him he can't do it. They can't do it. That is what Wainwright was screaming until he was able to control himself. And then he radioed MacArthur. At 6 o'clock this morning, General King, without my knowledge or approval, sent a flag of truce to the Japanese commander. The minute I heard of it, I disapproved of his action, and I directed that there would be no surrender. I was informed it was too late to make any change, that the action had already been taken. End of quote. At 9 a.m., King, wearing his very last clean uniform, headed up to the front in a jeep with two aides. 
some Japanese guides escorted them to an experimental farm station at Lamao. At that moment, King thought to himself that General Lee surrendered to General Grant at Apometox on the same very day, April the 9th. General Lee said just before the ceremony, Then there is nothing left to do but to go and see General Grant, and I would rather die a thousand deaths. A black Cadillac drove up with Colonel Nakayama, and through an interpreter, Homa's senior operations officer asked King if he was General Wainwright. Uh, no, I am General King, commander of all forces on Bataan. The puzzled Nakayama told him to go get Wainwright. The Japanese could not accept the surrender without him. My forces are no longer fighting units. I want to stop further bloodshed. Surrender must be unconditional. Will our troops be well treated? We are not barbarians. Will you surrender unconditionally? End of quote. King nodded and told Nakayama he had left his saber in Manila and instead placed his pistol on the table. American and Filipino soldiers huddled themselves into groups. Many wept in humiliation, but many also wept in relief that it was all finally over. They all awaited anxiously for the conquerors to arrive. Air Corps Captain Mark Wolfeld saw some of the first Japanese troops who came by packing a big mountain gun. They all had smiles on their faces, and they spoke quite lightly. It seemed to Wolfeld they were not such bad chaps after all. The Japanese soldiers began stripping the prisoners of blankets, watches, jewelry, all equipment, food, hell, even their toothbrushes. One Japanese soldier found 25 rounds of a .45 caliber pistol on Wolfeld and began to shout at him and beat him with a rifle butt. Someone beside Wolfeld muttered, For Christ's sake, don't fall down. Another Japanese soldier saw a gold ring on Lieutenant Colonel Jack Sewell and tried to yank it from him. It's my wedding ring was what Sewell protested, and he snapped his hand back. The Japanese soldier took the bayonet off his rifle and came towards Sewell when Wolfred got between them. Allegedly, Sewell and Wolfred both had no spit in them to get the ring loose, so Wolfred smeared his own blood from his head wound on the finger to pop the ring off. More and more Japanese began to rob the men of similar items, when one Japanese officer noticed a man trying to take a ring that bore the University of Notre Dame insignia upon it. The officer hit the soldier in the face and returned the ring to its owner, saying in plain English, When did you graduate? 1935. Ha, I graduated from Southern California in 35. Then, Wainwright received a message from Roosevelt. It is as follows. 
I am keenly aware of the tremendous difficulties under which you are waging your great battle. The physical exhaustion of your troops obviously precludes the possibility of a major counterattack, unless our efforts to rush food to you should quickly prove successful. Because of the state over which your forces have no control, I am modifying my orders to you. My purpose is to leave to your best judgment any decisions affecting the future of the Batan garrison. I feel it proper and necessary that you should be assured of complete freedom of action and of my full confidence in the wisdom of whatever decision you may be forced to make. End of quote. Over in Australia, Douglas MacArthur read a prepared statement to reporters, and it is as follows. The Battalion Force went out as it would have wished, fighting in the end its flickering, forlorn hope. No army has done so much with so little, and nothing became it more than its last hour of trial and agony. To the weeping mothers of its dead, I only say that the sacrifice and halo of Jesus of Nazareth has descended upon their sons, and that God will take them unto himself. End of quote. Now, let's just take a, a bit of a moment to listen to some of that quote again. The part where he says, No army has done so much with so little, and nothing became it more than its last hour in trial and agony. Well, when MacArthur received word that they were going to surrender in Bataan, he was literally scrambling to cover his own mess, so to speak. The army in question had so little because of his enormous blundering of Warplan Orange. And as for the last hours, he demanded they fight to the death. And he was lying to the public to hide that disastrous order. And things over in the Philippines weren't even necessarily done with. Over on the rock, that being the code word for Corregidor, 13,000 troops were garrisoning it. Its defenses were considered impregnable. However, the shortage of water and food meant the defenders were really on their last legs. Intense artillery and aerial bombardment was sapping the defenders' morale. In the past, submarines were bringing food in, you know, alongside mail and war equipment, but they could no longer do that. The garrison was doomed by lack of supplies. It was no longer a question of if, but when. Now, I'm about to talk about a story that, for a lot of the American audience, is quite an emotional one. It's been told by countless other people. I probably can't do it much justice. I chose my sources carefully, and I wanted to find some sources that didn't, I want to say, over-exaggerate some of the events, but didn't underplay them as well. So, this will be the harrowing story of the Bataan Death March. When General Homa began planning for the final end to Bataan, he estimated that he would be capturing something along the lines of 25,000 prisoners. Homa turned over the logistical planning to his transportation officer, 
Major General Yoshikata Kawane. Kawane divided the operation into two phases, and ten days before the final attack, he presented the plan to General Homa for approval. Colonel Toshimitsu Takatsu would be responsible for the first phase, bringing all the prisoners to Balanga, which lay halfway up the peninsula. The distance for those leaving from Marivelles all the way at the southern tip of Batan was something around 19 miles. A simple enough march for a well-fed Japanese soldier. No need for transportation, nor any need for additional food supplies. The Americans and Filipinos could just use their own rations. Oh, however, the blundering of Warplan Orange keeps rearing its ugly head, doesn't it? Anyways, Kawane would personally supervise the second phase, the trip from Balanga to the prison camp. No more than 200 trucks could be spared for the operation, but it was estimated to be sufficient to shuttle prisoners the 33 miles from Balanga to the rail center of San Fernando. From there, freight trains would take the men north another 30 miles to Capas, a village due north of Clark Field. From there, they would trek another eight miles to their new home, Camp O'Donnell. Kawane further explained to Homa that the Allied prisoners would eat the very same rations as the Japanese troops, and that field hospitals would be established at Balanga and San Fernando, and that multiple medical units, aid stations, and even resting places would be set up every few miles along the entire route. A very well thought out and honestly quite very gentry-like plan. Homa approved this plan. There was one slight issue. Everything was basically bullshit, and the prisoners were not 25,000. They were 75,000 starving men, weakened with malaria, who had no more rations. At Merivelle, groups of 300 were started up the road. Some had no guards. Others had as many as four. The prisoners soon walked by King's former HQ, where a side road led to a military hospital. A rumor began to spread through that very hospital that the Japanese were freeing all the Filipinos. The chief of surgery went from ward to ward screaming to the Filipinos it was nothing more than a hoax. But the Japanese guards were very eager to rid themselves of responsibility, and thus they encouraged the patients to join up with the line of prisoners along the march. Infected by mass hysteria, 5,000 men scrambled out to the dusty trail. Amputees, people with crutches, people with open wounds, and so on, marched, and the ditches along the roads were lining up with their dead. The men marching from Marivelles continued up the coast of Batan. As the prisoners made their way north, on the other side of the roads, heavy Japanese equipment streamed south in preparation for the assault on Corregidor. Japanese infantry jeered at the prisoners, knocking off their hats and helmets with long bamboo poles. 
Occasionally, a Japanese soldier would stop the behavior and apologize to the captives. There is one story where a Japanese officer rushed up to an American tank commander and he embraced him, for they had both been classmates at UCLA. There was no consistency to the actions of the Japanese, however. One truckload of troops would toss down canteens to the prisoners, while the next would use liberated golf clubs to beat the shit out of the prisoners. The brutalities of the first day were quite spontaneous, but this would change. Colonel Masanobu Tsuji arrived in Manila several days earlier from Singapore, where 5,000 Chinese had just been murdered, mostly because of his own instigation for supporting the British colonialism, part of the Suk Ching massacre I had mentioned in a previous episode. Ziji allegedly, without Homa's knowledge, convinced several admiring officers on the general staff that this was a racial war and that all prisoners in the Philippines should simply be executed. The Americans, because they were nothing more than white colonists, and the Filipinos, because, well, they betrayed their fellow Asian rice. This led a division officer to phone Colonel Imai, who had just conquered Mount Limay, telling him, Kill all prisoners and those offering to surrender. How can I possibly obey such an order? I want this order in writing. End of quote. That divisional officer simply told him the order was coming from Imperial HQ and that he had best obey. Colonel Imai refused to comply unless he received a written order and he hung up on the man. Colonel Imai then ordered his staff to set all of the prisoners they could free with directions on the best way to escape from Batan. His staff stared unbelievingly at him when he gave that order, and he yelled at them to obey his command. He said, to stop standing around like so many wooden-headed dolls. End of quote. It is said that more than a thousand prisoners were released. As the former prisoners ran into the jungle, Colonel Imoe argued with himself that no Japanese general would have issued such an inhumane order. But if it was indeed true, he would pretend the prisoners had just escaped on their own. When we tell these stories, it's often hard to consider or remember. These are living and breathing human beings. Some chose to stand against the flow, so to say. And their stories are often left untold. I think it's important to mention there were people in the Japanese military that did try to stop the atrocities. That order, by the way, began one of the first major atrocities. Colonel Masanobu Tsuiji ordered and supervised the execution of 350 to 400 Filipino officers and NCOs near the Pentagon River. Most of those men were shot, bayoneted, or beheaded with katanas. This is now known as the Pentagon River Massacre. A similar order to kill prisoners was relayed verbally 
to Major General Tora Ikuta, a commander of a recently arrived garrison unit. Like Colonel Imai, Ikuta and his chief of staff, Lieutenant Colonel Nobihiko Jimbo, doubted the order had really come from Imperial HQ. The staff officer relaying the order told him his own division was already executing prisoners and advised Ikuta to do the very same. The general refused to act without a written order. Now the marchers from Marivelles suffered quite a hellish night. They were jammed together in enclosures that made it difficult to even turn over. Captain Mark Wulfeld had just gone to sleep when he was awoken by a stench. When he opened his eyes, his face was lying on filthy rags. He jumped up and in the bright tropical moonlight saw the rags were actually the trousers of a man behind him dripping in feces and blood. Ugh, that rotten son of a bitch, was what Captain Woodfield shouted. He crammed up the trousers in the soldier's face, but the man did not budge. Woodfield shouted for him to get up, and he pulled his face forward to see the man was dead. The Japanese guards, angered by his commotion, started hitting him and tossing him around until Woodfield pointed out that there was a dead American prisoner. He demanded to be allowed to haul the corpse away, but neither guard offered any help, as he struggled to do so by himself. He felt terrible for abusing the dead man, for what he had thought was some sort of sick choke. General Kawane had calculated it would take about a day to get the prisoners to march to Balanga, but many were on the road for more than three days. With every mile, the guards became more irritated and thus much more brutal. The sun was blazing hot. There was little shade for the marchers. Thick dust stung their eyes. By April the 11th, Balanga was swollen with shouting guards hurting streams of prisoners. It was already very apparent. The logistics were dramatically exceeded. An attempt was made to feed the prisoners their very first meal, but the unmanageable numbers led to frustration and unequal disbursement. Some were given rice, salt, and water. Some, nothing at all. From Balanga, Kawane planned to transport all the prisoners in trucks to San Fernando, yet more than half of them would have to continue marching on foot. General Jones led his column all the way until midnight, over eight miles to get to Orani. They were then shoved into a rice paddy enclosed by barbed wire. With the darkness came another nightmare. Mosquitoes swarmed all over them. If somebody had to go to the bathroom, they were led to a latrine pit these were literal pits full of feces that required one man to help another man get out or risk drowning if they fell in. In the morning, Mark Wulfeld saw a few dead bodies floating in one of those very pits. Wulfeld tried to get the Japanese guards to let him and others get the bodies out, 
only to be thrown to the ground and beaten. The next day, the prisoners were fed lugao, a paste like rice mush. It was another 16 miles to get to the next station at Lubao. Again, some guards treated them well, allowing them water breaks, while other guards kicked over cans of water placed on the highways by civilians and forced prisoners to squat in the blazing sun as a rest break. Corpses lined up in the ditches on the sides of the roads. Crows tore into them with flies everywhere. Lieutenant Colonel Alan Stowell began counting the corpses and got to about 27 when he told himself, you gotta cut this out. He began to march with his eyes fixed straight ahead. A young Filipino, Lieutenant Tony Aquino, who had swum to Corregidor to see President Quezon, had been walking without rest nor water, and he apparently had lost 50 pounds since he had come to Bataan. His legs were swollen, and he saw an American man crumble in front of him, and a Japanese guard began to kick the man until the man tried painfully to rise up, extending his hand, pleading for help to get up from the man that was kicking him. The Japanese guard shoved his bayonet straight into the man's neck and then again into his body, as Aquino and the others watched in horror. Further back, General Blumel was marching beside Brigadier General Luther Stevens when a Japanese soldier in a passing truck swung viciously at Stevens' head with a bamboo pole. Blumel grabbed his staggered colleague as the two fell towards a ditch. A guard pointing a revolver at Blumel motioned him to march on, but Blumel ignored the man and helped a dazed Stevens up to his feet. But Stevens' legs gave way and he fell in the middle of a rice paddy. Another guard rushed at them with a bayonet fixed, assuming they were trying to flee, but saw Stevens face down in the rice paddy and he assumed he was dead. He motioned for Blumel to march on. Stevens crawled behind some undergrowth and watched as the column carried on. If it was not for Blumel's courage, he would have died. Unfortunately, another Japanese unit would discover him and carry him on to prison. At a resting stop a few miles north, Corporal Roy Castleberry watched two civilians dig a hole and lay a delirious American captain in it. When the captain realized what was occurring, he desperately struggled to escape what was his grave, and a guard ordered the Filipinos to hit the men over the head with their shovels. The Filipinos refused, but then the Japanese soldier raised his rifle at them. With faces twisted in agony, they beat the captain over the head with their shovels, and they buried him alive. Castleberry saw a hand feebly claw out of the dirt of that grave, an image that would haunt him for the rest of his life. Many prisoners that fell were simply shot or bayoneted. Some Japanese officers on horseback beheaded prisoners with katanas. As the prisoners made their way to Labau, they faced a particularly brutal stretch of unshaded road. Thirst became so bad Many prisoners risked their lives trying to sneak into some sugarcane fields 
for meager moisture. Most men were so dehydrated, they could no longer urinate. And those who did, well, it hurt like pissing hot iron, as some reported it. At Labau, the city held 30,000 residents who lined up in the streets trying to throw any food they had. Boiled eggs, fried chicken wrapped in banana leaves, or pieces of panocha. That's a, a hard brown sugar. The Japanese guards kept the crowds of civilians back with their rifles, but every so often, an old Filipino woman might grab a prisoner and pull him out of the column, standing over him with their long skirts. At the far edge of the town, the Japanese began herding the vanguard of the prisoners into a large tin-roofed rice mill, packing several thousand men inside. There was a single water spigot inside, and the prisoners were slashed with sabers and bayonets for any minor insubordination. Others beaten to death for no reason at all. The final lap to San Fernando was nine miles long, and it was rough. The asphalt roads, churned by tanks and trucks, was like molten lava from sun rays. And the barefoot marchers, whose souls were already raw, were walking on literal fire. When the starving, dehydrated men went past lines of trucks, it was like gauntlets, as soldiers in the trucks swung their rifle butts and bamboo poles at any Filipino or American they could. In the town, civilians came from all over Luzon, searching for loved ones, and wept when they saw the skeleton army march in. Here, at least, some of Kawane's plan was carried out with some efficiency. The prisoners got rice balls, water, and medical treatment. They were imprisoned in makeshift places, dance halls, pottery sheds, empty lots, schools, old factories, and so on. Lieutenant Aquino's group was locked up in an old rundown vinegar factory. He collapsed unconscious for 14 hours until he was awakened and escorted to a Japanese barracks where his father was with a Japanese colonel. His father embraced him, and the Kempai commander said, Mr. Aquino is a good friend of Japan. He said this in a British accent before telling Aquino he could go home. But Aquino told him he could not desert his men and instead requested more food and medicine for the other prisoners. Your father was right. He said you would refuse. Please accept my apologies for the way you all have been treated. End of quote. The Kempai commander left Aquino with his father for some time, and his father told him that President Cuzon was trying to get earlier releases for all the Filipinos being sent to the prison camps. Hurry, Papa, we are dying like flies, was what Aquino said to his father. The men were herded into boxcars, over a hundred or so per car. Soon, the cars were filled with vomit, feces, and urine. The stench was unbearable. According to one Staff Sergeant Alf Larsen, the train consisted of six or seven World War I-era boxcars, 
They packed us in the cars like sardines, so tight you couldn't sit down. They then shut the door. If you passed out, you couldn't fall down. If someone had to go to the toilet, you went right there, where you were. It was close to the summer. The weather was hot and humid. Hotter than Billy Blaze. We were on the train from the early morning to late afternoon without getting out. People died in those railroad cars. End of quote. It was a three-hour trip to Capas, and many men died along the way. Some guards opened the locked doors. Others did not even do so, not allowing fresh air to get in. Filipinos were always about handing water bottles, tomatoes, bananas, rice, and such. Many Americans, who held racial attitudes towards them, truly began to appreciate their courage and humanity. At Capas, the trains were unloaded, and there still lay an eight-mile march over a shadeless and dusty road to Camp O'Donnell. When they finally made it, the guards herded them through some gates flanked by towers spiked with machine gun nests. They sat for hours in the sun before an officer, the commander of the camp, strode out of a door. He faced them, and he announced in a belligerent voice through an interpreter that the United States was his greatest enemy, and that the Japanese were going to whip the Americans, even if it would take a hundred years. Two days after the first group got into Camp O'Donnell, the Manila Sunday Tribune published pictures of the march along with a Japanese-inspired story. Here is some of that piece. The task of making observations upon the tragic aspect of marching war prisoners from the Bataan Front, where they surrendered on April the 9th, to San Fernando, Pampanga, previous to their entrainment to their permanent concentration camp, is a sad one. Hence, our effort to avoid details about the whole episode. So the public would not get the wrong impression from such an enigmatic remark. However, we make it plain that the Imperial Japanese forces, whose business is clearly to prosecute the present war to its successful termination, are going well out of their way to feed and help 50,000 men, who once were their enemies beyond most reasonable men's expectations. If, in spite of the humane treatment the Japanese are giving these prisoners, the latter are too weak to reach their destinations, we have only the high command of the American forces to blame for surrendering when many of their men had already been terribly weakened by lack of food and by diseases. End of quote. General Homa would be absorbed by what would become a two-month campaign against Corregidor, and he would not learn about the fate of the prisoners until much later on. 54,000 prisoners made it to Camp O'Donnell. Quite a few escaped, so a real exact death toll is hard to estimate. Between 7,000 to 10,000 died on that march from starvation, dehydration, malaria, beatings, 
and execution. Of this number, around 2,330 were American. Most survivors stated the march was a cruel plan of the Japanese High Command. The cruelty was not systematic, however. Some lucky prisoners rode trucks from Balanga to San Fernando and suffered very little. Many marched and didn't face a single brutality. Yet others were murdered, beaten, starved, and it was all done in an unsystematic way. I hope at some point to do a special episode on the subject as to why the Japanese soldiers in World War II did some of these atrocious things. It's a rather long answer, one I have written actually many essays upon during my university years. Brutality to the Japanese soldier at this time was a way of life. They took beatings from their officers, who took beatings from their superiors, and so on. The pecking order of abuse ran down the pyramid, and those at the very bottom, who do they have to beat up? Well, they beat civilians, POWs, and so on. To the Japanese soldier, surrender was not an option. It was the ultimate disgrace. In their soldiers' manuals, it read this. Bear in mind the fact that to be captured means not only disgracing the army, but your parents and family will never be able to hold up their heads again. Always save the last round for yourself. End of quote. Hell, many Japanese soldiers witnessed the enemy firing every last bullet they had, killing their comrades before surrendering. And that also played into a lot of it. Take this account, written on April the 24th by the Japanese Times and Advertiser. The Allies surrender after sacrificing all the lives they can, except their own. For a cause which they know well is futile, they surrender merely to save their own skin. They have shown themselves to be utterly selfish throughout all the campaigns, and they cannot be treated as ordinary prisoners of war. They have broken the commandments of God, and their defeat is their punishment. To show them mercy is to prolong the war. Their motto has been absolute unscrupulousness. They have not cared what means they employed in their operations. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The Japanese forces are crusaders in a holy war. Hesitation is uncalled for, and wrongdoers must be wiped out. End of quote. Their training was brutal, purposely done to mold them to do unspeakable things. They were told the things they were being forced to do would be done to them by their enemies, for their enemies would simply reciprocate. It's so much more complex than these meager rationales. So I implore you listeners, if you're truly interested in this horrifying subject, there's a good book called The Knights of Bushido, if you have the stomach for it. At the end of the war, General Masaharu Homa 
who tried to mitigate the harsh treatment of the prisoners and Filipino civilians would take the lion's share of the blame for the designated war crimes, though it was clear that he had not ordered the atrocities and far from clear whether he was even aware of what had actually taken place. He was charged with 43 separate counts, but the verdict did not distinguish among them, leaving some doubt over whether he was truly found guilty of them at all. He was found guilty of permitting members of his command to commit atrocities. He claimed he was too busy with the Corregidor campaign and thus was ignorant of the death toll of the march until two months after the event had taken place. The court sentenced him to death, and Homa accepted his capital sentence with remarkable grace, thanking the five-man military commission for his treatment during his confinement. He was executed by firing squad on the 3rd of April 1946. His two subordinates, Major General Yoshitaka Kawane, and Colonel Kurataro Hirano were both hanged in 1948. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and if you're still hungry after all that, Give my personal channel a look over at the Pacific War channel at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. A truly horrifying story to end this week's episode, and I barely touched the tip of the iceberg that is the Bataan Death March. Bataan has fallen. Corregidor still remains. The Allies have been humiliated and devastated. Yet, next week, they will strike back at the very heart of Japan, that of Tokyo.